This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, October the 2nd, 2011. The spirit is willing, but the vocal cords are listed day to day, uh, or should I say minute by minute, uh, battling some uh, sort of, well, it's going around. What can I say? It's in the air, it's everywhere. Uh, the uh, the entire Serrett household up in Onionville is uh, is grappling with this, and uh, we try to build up the uh, uh, the twins' immunity, uh, their immune system, and uh, so what um, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I decided to do when they were very early age is uh, we, we we told them to go around and start licking doorknobs and uh, escalator rails. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We would not do that, but that's you know that's one way you could. Uh, Build up your immune system, I suppose. Uh, listen, I hope you're enjoying the uh, the TV show coming at you weeknights at 11 p.m. on Vision TV. Uh, Rogers here in town, I believe. It's available on Channel 60, but as they say, check local listings. 11 p.m. weeknights, every weeknight uh, on, uh, on Vision TV. And uh, it started on Wednesday. We, uh, we saw the Roswell UFO incident. Uh, we saw... Princess Diana, which was one of my favorite episodes uh, to make that. We went over to the UK back in in February. Hope you enjoyed that. And, of course, uh, we finished up on Friday with the Secret Space Mission. Uh, But uh, five more brand new episodes coming your way next week, 11 p.m. Eastern. And then in the second half of the show, you get uh, an old chestnut, as we say, from season one. And, as always, check the website theconspiracyshow.com, the brand new reformatted website is up and running and there is a, a feedback page there. You can contact us here at The Conspiracy Show and we enjoy reading your uh, your emails. All right, a busy, busy show. We have The Dinosaur Hunter. It's been a while since we checked in with Bill Gibbons and he had a very interesting encounter this past summer. We'll find out from Bill at around 12.30. And at 11.30... Former U.S. Army intelligence officer, researcher, author Robert Galen Ross will be along to talk about The Elite Serial Killers. That's the name of his book, The Elite Serial Killers of Lincoln, JFK, MLK, and RFK. 
And uh, so he'll be taking a look at the shadowy figures behind the Triggermen. It's not... Don't pay attention to the people who the, that, that, that fire the trigger or that pull the trigger, uh, Robert says. It's who signs the checks, who cut the check to get uh, 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 John Wilkes Booth or Oswald or Sir Hans or Han or whomever was involved. So that's uh, coming up. And in just a few moments, everyone, of course, is very concerned about what's going on in Europe with the, um, the, the debt crisis over there and the, uh, the ripple effect. Of course, ripples can turn into tsunamis. And uh, how soon will we feel that on the shores here in North America? Jeffrey Steinberg, the, uh, the co-founder and the intelligence, uh, counterintelligence editor of Executive Intelligence Review will be here. Jeffrey Steinberg will talk to us about uh, the euro economic crisis in just a few moments. But first, call the folks at Guinness. I managed to find a couple of 16-year-old bright young women who listen not only to this program, but to AM radio. Can you believe it? And we're delighted to have um, the, the, uh, the woman in question from last week I mentioned. She celebrated her 16th birthday on September. I'm not going to say the exact date. I'm superstitious. Is that okay with you if I don't say the exact date? Totally fine. Last week, Vanessa celebrated her 16th birthday. She's a big fan of the show. Her mother contacted me uh, some time ago and we arranged surreptitiously to uh, to have Vanessa come into the program and enjoy the evening so first of all a very happy 16th birthday Vanessa well thank you and uh, she's brought along a um, a fellow fan of the program and they they listen to they download the podcast podcasts and they listen and they uh, uh, they swap notes and make flowcharts and and uh, do multimedia presentations to their high school friends maybe not but uh, Megan welcome to you thank you First of all, uh, what is it like to be 16 in 2011? Because I can, I can almost remember being 16, Vanessa. Um, it's not much different than being 15. You just get a bigger number. That's right, right. <laughs> okay. And how did you first start listening to this program? Um, I first heard about it when you were doing a program on the Shroud of Turin. And I was very interested in that topic previously. Mm -hmm. I saw a television program on it the day before. And so I was brand new to that topic and I tuned in and ever since then I've been listening loyally. Ah, well, and I thank you for it. And and uh, then you yes. made um, Megan aware of the program and you started listening. Is that how it works? Yep. She told me about the program on the Shadow of Turin, which I was also really interested in and we liked the show a lot, so we kept listening. Is there a favorite subject matter that we cover on the show that you like, uh, Vanessa? The Shroud of Turin. I don't know, maybe just because it got us started on this whole new aspect to things. Right. That's a good one. And, and prior to hearing this program, had you was this an area that you were interested in, UFOs or the paranormal or conspiracies? 9-11, that day, mm. is always a curious date. Ten years ago, you were six. You have vivid memories of that day? None. No. But I've seen TV, and obviously I've heard about it through other things, and so I've always been curious about it. Right, right. Well, I, 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 I issue this uh, sort of caveat, and we, we talked earlier in the boardroom, and I'll just say it again on the radio, that um, I always caution, not only young minds, just anyone in general, uh, I mean, one of the things that we talk about on the show is not to take anything at face value, and that includes what you hear on this program. Some of it is very entertaining, some of it is highly speculative. Uh, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out, as they say. And... Um, do your own research. Don't leave that up to someone else. 
uh, to spoon feed you information and to say this is the way the world works. You have to figure that out for yourself. So that's the message that I would leave with you. So welcome to the Conspiracy Show, and uh, we'll we'll chat as the as the program uh, uh, progresses through the evening. I'll get your feedback. You'll be my little focus group here on the program. You can give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the interviews. Be honest. I, I value your uh, your feedback, and uh, I'm uh, I'm very pleased to have a couple of uh, such. Two fine young women who not only listen to the program, but AM radio. I, I just con- it continues. Do, do your friends even know what AM radio is? And I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, probably not. <laughs> Vaguely, maybe. <laughs> Does anyone listen to AM or FM, even FM, in in your school? Is everyone listening yeah. on uh, you know the i on the iPods and so forth? It's mostly iPods. Got yeah. a right. little car extension adapter. Just plug it in. Plug in your iPod in. How about CDs? Does anyone listen to CDs anymore? I have quite a collection of CDs, but I don't know. I think it's pretty much going digital now, mostly just iPods. It's funny. I was taking uh, Megan and Vanessa and Vanessa's family through the, the halls here, and uh, we, we were showing them the uh, the CDs, which is old technology now. And uh, and uh, uh, I think it was you, Vanessa, you said, oh, I prefer CDs. I mean, we used to say that about, you know, when CDs came on, on stream, we used to say that about vinyl. There was a huge fight. You know, you were either, the world was divided into two camps. Those that listened to digital on CD, on compact disc, and those that, that clung steadfastly to, their, to their, uh, their vinyl analog recordings. But you prefer the old technology, the CDs, is Indeed. that right? Indeed. All right. All right, why don't we uh, head on into a break when we come back. We'll get um, some news from the counterintelligence director at Executive Intelligence Review. It's not probably going to be pretty news. Uh, it's um, it's information, nonetheless, that we all need to hear and prepare for. You you know the old saying, forearmed, forewarned, forearmed, or something like that. We'll uh, come back and discuss the coming economic meltdown. Some are suggesting with Jeffrey Steinberg right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, brace yourselves. Lesson number one in broadcasting. Make sure the mic switch is on, Vanessa and Megan. See how I... Managed to forget that. All right, here we go. Take two. Uh, the uh, the coming week promises uh, to be highly volatile once again, and uh, particularly with the stock markets, as the European uh, debt problems continue to uh, unsettle the global economic stability. And uh, of course, Greece is uh, seems to be uh, front and center. But Greece is just uh, the first. Who knows? Next will be Italy, then Spain, then Portugal. Uh, will uh, the UK be far behind? Uh, mounting seemingly insurmountable uh, debt problems, and of course, this is just causing huge ripple effects throughout the uh, the world uh, global economic system. And uh, here to tell us uh, more is the uh, co-founder of the Executive Intelligence Review, which is a, a fine publication. I encourage you uh, to get a copy. We'll find out how we can subscribe in just a moment. First, first, let's welcome Jeffrey Steinberg to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So, uh, give us a, a, an update. What's, what's the, the latest, the, uh, the, the bleak news uh, concerning the European debt crisis? 
as long as there's a continuing effort to both hold the euro together and to think that the global speculative debt can ever possibly be paid, uh, we're going to be stuck in a downward spiral, which at any moment could lead to a blowout process. Uh, there's no telling what the subjective results of that will be. Do you get a Greek default that uh, wipes out the entire euro system immediately? Uh, do you get a more gradual contagion when suddenly the debt crisis in Italy, which is the largest debt bubble in Italy, is the third largest economy in uh, the entire European Union after Germany and France. Uh, they're, they're, we're in unknown and uncharted territory, but the thing that should be understood is that the longer there's an attempt to postpone a day of reckoning where the debt bubble, the speculative gambling debt, has to simply be written off. The longer that's delayed, the worse the consequences would be. Anybody who wants to understand the nature of the current moment should look at what happened under much more limited and controlled circumstances in Weimar, Germany, in October and early November of 1923. People were running around with a wheelbarrow full of money to pay for Precisely. a loaf of bread. So let's, let's really simplify this, because this is very complicated. Uh, and for many people listening, uh, even, you know, veteran uh, followers of current affairs sometimes have difficulty wrapping their heads around uh, uh, what's going on. What, would, what does it mean for Greece if they were to default? What does that mean if they were to default? On their, on their loans, on their debt? Uh, for Greece, it would be salvation. Greece should get out of the euro, should basically sit down with their creditors and say, look, uh, the Greek debt's worth about 25 cents on the dollar. Take it and uh, consider it uh, you know, a safe walk away, and then begin concentrating on the kinds of things that could rebuild the economy once you've restored a sovereign currency. As long as Greece is in the stranglehold of the euro and uh, the diktats from Brussels, uh, there's absolutely no salvation. And the more immediate likelihood is social chaos. Today, the Greek government met to work out final details on a brutal austerity package that will result potentially, as of tomorrow morning, in mass layoffs of Greek state sector workers who are guaranteed jobs for life under the Constitution. So you've got a social explosion set to happen. In Greece, um, the largest holders of Greek sovereign debt are German banks. So what the immediate impact is going to be on German banks is going to be pretty significant. Furthermore, the leading economies in Europe, especially Germany and France, uh, their largest export revenues come from other countries within Europe that don't manufacture the kinds of goods that Germany and France produce. So Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, these are also priority markets for German goods. So uh, a collapse of these economies will have a reverberating effect in the leading economies of Europe, which are the very countries expected 
to put up the collateral to bail out the poorer countries. This is the so end of the possible situation. Jeffrey, is this the end of the euro? Whether or not Greece defaults, very likely. Uh, there, there, there was a recent survey of a uh, hundred leading Russian economists, and eighty-nine out of the hundred said that they think that the euro is doomed, and it's just a matter of time before it plays out. Look, Argentina um, faced a major debt crisis in the last decade, and because they were a sovereign country with a sovereign currency, they sat down with the bondholders and said, uh, look, you're going to have to take a haircut because the survival of our country and the ability to recoup and rebuild our economy is in your best interest. Uh, so uh, the debt instruments that you're holding are not worth 100% anymore. They're worth 30%. And take it and walk away from it. And, you know, most of these bondholders have insurance on on their speculative activities anyway. Well, this could have a huge uh, uh, upside for the U.S. dollar, could it not? I mean, we're already seeing signs of that. It would, except for the fact that uh, the United States is similarly in the same kind of debt uh, death spiral. Uh, what you've got now on a global scale uh, is a combination of the two worst things that you could ever put together. You have a global decline, really collapse in physical production, and you have a bailout process that's creating monetary hyperinflation. Right now, you've got major U.S. banks, the big six New York banks, have $1.5 trillion in sovereign debt holdings in Spain and Italy alone. And the Fed is committed, as is President Obama, to the idea that we're going to be the creditors of last resort to bail out Europe. All right, so listen, I want, to, I want to get your take. inflation in the dollar implicit in this attempt to avoid the inevitable, which is the breakup of the euro and a major debt reorganization that starts with reinstating Glass-Steagall in the United States and then copying that solution around the world. Okay, Jeffrey, I want to get your take on this. This is a, uh, a uh, I guess, a bonds trader who's interviewed on BBC television a short while ago, and I cannot believe how candid this gentleman was. Have a listen. It's going to crash, and it's going to fall pretty hard because markets are ruled right now by fear. Uh, investors and the big money, the smart money, uh, I'm talking about uh, the big funds, the hedge funds, the institutions, they don't buy this rescue plan. Uh, they, they basically, um, they know the market is toast. They know the stock market is finished. The euro, as far as they're concerned, they don't really care. They're moving their money away to safer uh, assets, uh, like treasury bonds, 30-year uh, bonds, and the U.S. dollar. Um, so it's not going to work. We, we keep hearing that whatever the, the politicians are suggesting, and admittedly it's all been rather woolly so far, isn't right. Can you pin down exactly what would keep investors happy, make them feel more confident? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, personally, uh, it doesn't matter. That, that's, see, I'm a trader. Uh, I don't really care about that kind of stuff. I go with what the, uh, I, if I see an opportunity to make money, I go with that. Um, so for most traders, it's not about, it's that we don't really care that much how they're going to fix the economy, how they're going to fix the, uh, the whole situation. Our job is to make money from it. And 
personally, I've been dreaming of this moment for three years. Uh, I, I, I have a confession, which is uh, I go to bed every night, I dream of another recession. I dream of another moment like this. Why? Because uh, people don't seem to uh, maybe remember, but uh, the 30s depression, the depression in the 30s, wasn't just about a market crash. There were some people who were prepared to make money from that crash. And I think anybody can do that. It, it isn't just for some people in the elite. Anybody can actually make money. It's an opportunity. Uh, when the market crashes, uh, when the euro and the big stock markets crash, if you know what to do, um, if, if you have the right plan to set up, uh, you, can, you can make a lot of money from this. Uh, for example, hedging strategies is one. Um, then investing in bonds, treasury bonds, that sort of stuff. If you could see the people around me, jaws have collectively dropped at what you've just said. I mean, we, we appreciate your candor. However, it doesn't help the rest of us, does it, or the rest of the Eurozone? I, I would say this. Listen, I would say this to everybody who's watching this. This economic crisis is like a cancer. If you just wait and wait thinking this is going to go away, just like a cancer, it's going to grow and it's going to be too late. What I would say to everybody is get prepared. Uh, this is not a time right now to... Um, wishful thinking the government is going to sort things out. The governments don't rule the world. Goldman Sachs rules the world. Goldman Sachs does not care about this rescue package, neither does the big funds. So actually, what I, would, I, I would actually tell people, I want to help people. Uh, people can make money from this. It isn't just traders. What they need to do is learn about how to, how to make money from a, a downward market. Uh, the first thing people should do is protect their assets, protect what they have. Because in less than 12 months, uh, my prediction is, the savings of mil millions of people is going to vanish. Uh, and this is just the beginning. Just the beginning. Uh, Jeffrey, did you hear what he said? Governments don't rule the world. Goldman Sachs rules the world. Have you ever heard someone on the BBC speak with such candor? Well, I think he was doing two things. Number one, he was providing an accurate assessment of just how far we are uh, close to a complete systemic blowout. Uh, he was also making a sucker's pitch to basically draw investors in to um, speculative activities that uh, will only make the situation worse. You know, why do you think that the European governments placed a temporary ban on uh, short selling on certain financial stocks? Because uh, they know these vultures are out there, and uh, it's really not at this point, about making a short-term profit on the collapse of civilization into a dark age. Do you see that as a potential, the collapse of civilization into a dark age? Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. Look, um, what happened in Germany in the fall of 1923 was a social process of disintegration brought on by the bursting of a hyperinflationary bubble. That is the situation that we're in right now on a global scale. And back in 1923, we had the United States ready to step in and bail out Germany that had been looted blind by Versailles. The problem today is that there's no U.S. in a position to step in because the financial bubble is global. Uh, the gambling debt that built up from 2000, when you had the repeal of Glass-Steagall in the United States and cascading deregulation around the globe, reached a point in 2007, 2008, where the bubble burst. Uh, 
And rather than just simply forcing the speculators to eat their losses, taxpayers in the United States and Europe in particular stepped in and bailed them out so that the gambling debt was absorbed by taxpayers as sovereign debt. So here we are three years later, and we have a sovereign debt crisis. Now, what could have been more obvious than that? So there's been no solution to the 2008 crash. Uh, We've only kicked the can down the road and uh, created a new and bigger financial bubble. Since 2007 July, when this crisis began, the major European and U.S. banks have lost between 50 and 80 percent, in some cases over 90 percent of their market valuation. Stocks of these banking institutions have crashed. Yet at the same time, the banks have gone through a doubling of their speculative holdings in leveraged derivatives, unregulated uh, instruments. What's going to happen in the next 12 months? Walk us through a a worst-case scenario. Well, let's start with the best-case scenario. The best-case scenario is that in the United States, there's a bill in the House of Representatives, and I think a companion bill is going to be introduced into the Senate within the next week or two to reinstate the Glass-Steagall breakup of the too-big-to-fail banks and the separation of legitimate commercial banks from brokerage and insurance and hedging activities uh, to where the gambling debts are going to be basically put back on the books of the gamblers. No more taxpayer bailout. Uh, That alone would mean that $17 trillion in taxpayers' bailout of uh, purely speculative, non-productive gambling debt is going to go back onto the books of the gamblers, and they're going to all go bankrupt. And... You know, there's going to be no net loss to society in that happening. So what I'm more focused on is the fact that there's a best-case scenario to get rid of this cancerous debt. What the guy who was interviewed on BBC referred to as the cancer here. Uh, We're going to go in with aggressive uh, surgery and chemotherapy, and we're going to kill the cancer. Well, that's fine, except there's still trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of, of, of bad debt that has to work its way through the system. But the, the, the gamblers who made the bad debts are going to eat it, and they're going to disappear. And if we're kind to them, uh, we'll go with some big infrastructure projects and give them some productive job, jobs, maybe building public buildings, building rail lines, Maybe digging ditches. Okay, so that's, this may be a way out a way out of this disaster scenario. There is, there is a way out. It was the way out that Franklin Roosevelt charted in 1933 when he declared a bank holiday and uh, basically figured out the distinction between sovereign, leg- legitimate commercial debt and gambling debt. Okay, and if that bill and doesn't pass. Massive amounts of credit by going back to a credit system. What happens if this bill doesn't pass, creation. Jeffrey? What happens if the bill doesn't pass? Uh, If the bill doesn't pass, then you are going to get the worst hyperinflationary blowout in modern history, and the people of the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world are going to suffer uh, incalculable uh, crises. It's a life savings wiped out. Down moments where either things go really good or really bad. There's no more chicken the can down the road, and no more middle ground. 
And but is there a price to be paid, though? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing there would be a, still a price to be paid if this bill passes. We're still going to have some short-term pain, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, we can begin turning things around very quickly. People will get a sense. Look, the, the, the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt and the policies of the first hundred days uh, didn't solve everybody's problems overnight. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of continued suffering. But the difference was that people saw a change in direction. When is this bill to come? to be optimistic about rather than having a purely pessimistic view about the future prospects. When is this bill to come to a vote? Uh, well, we've, we, what we're going for right now is an absolute majority of members of the House coming on as co-sponsors. And uh, once that happens, then it automatically comes up for a vote, debate and vote before the full House. Uh, these are things that are not settled yet. It's a fight. It's a, it's a really fight in the trenches situation. And uh, people really need to go to the LaRouche PAC website uh, where there's extensive uh, video presentations and up-to-the-minute documentation and updates on this fight and a clear idea of what people need to jump in on it. Uh, One us- of the projects that, that we're talking about, I should say, is the uh, revival of the North American Water and Power Alliance proposal from the 1960s that was a joint U.S.-Canada-Mexico project for solving the water crisis in the entire Western Hemisphere, starting in North America. And that project in the United States alone would create more than 5 million productive jobs overnight. So you're looking for and, sort of a new, a new Deal type uh, situation. Listen, how do we get a, whole, how do we get a, a copy of uh, Executive Intelligence Review? Well, two things. There's two websites to go to. Uh, one is uh, the EIR website, which is www.larouchepub, L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E-P-U-B.com. And the other website is our political action committee, which has a continuous uh, update process of news reporting and documentary videos, and that's www.larouchepac.com. That's L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E dot P-A-C. Uh, I'm sorry, L-A-R-O-U-C-H-E-P-A-C dot com. LaRouchePac.com. Be- between those two websites you can get all of the information you need, including on the LaRouche pub site, the EIR site. You can find out how to subscribe to Executive Intelligence Review magazine, and you can access a great deal of material from EIR on that website for free and get an idea of what we're talking about here. Jeffrey, thank you for this, and we'll be on the edge of our seats, obviously, uh, waiting for that uh, vote in the U.S. uh, House. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Jeffrey Steinberg, Executive Intelligence Review. When we come back, the elite serial killers of Lincoln, MLK, RFK, and JFK. Robert Galen Ross joins us here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. That's uh, from Who Stole the Cookies, a local band here in Toronto. And uh, we thank them for composing that theme, which we uh, have instituted as our uh, sort of our bottom of the first hour theme. I believe that's uh, called Stolen Cookies, and uh, which is sort of apropos, I guess, talking about uh, uh, stolen wealth and, and, and the, uh, the debt crisis. It is difficult to understand. And... Um, I was uh, just speaking with uh, Vanessa, our birthday uh, girl, young lady, I should say, our birthday lady here in the uh, studio, and uh, Megan, two fans of the program we've invited to, to sit in. And uh, I guess I was just comparing it to if you had a credit card and you maxed out on that credit card, if you have a $10,000 maximum, and then you couldn't pay it back, what do you do? Well, you get another credit card, you, you get your American Express card, and you pay off your visa with your American Express. And then when the American Express bill comes in, you get a MasterCard, and you pay that off. And you just keep going around and around in circles, forestalling the inevitable. But uh, you can only do that for so long, and then there is a day of reckoning. And that day of reckoning appears to be uh, here for countries like Greece, and then Italy, and Spain, and so forth, and so on, and eventually the United States. So this is the mess that we're in. And we went through this once before, uh, back in the... Uh, the 30s, the dirty 30s, they call it 10 years of severe, severe depression. Ask your grandparents and your great-grandparents about that. All right, we'll uh, shift gears here a little bit. Just a reminder, coming up at 12.30, the dinosaur hunter, Bill Gabins, will check in, and he had a very strange encounter this past, sunter, this past summer. I'll give you a hint. It involves a sea monster. Uh, he is known as the dinosaur hunter. He's been to uh, Africa a number of times, Bill has, in search of a creature called Mokilium bembe, which bears a striking resemblance to an apatosaurus, or we used to call it a brontosaurus, back when I was in school. And uh, the, um, the problem is, of course, that creature has supposedly been dead for 60 million years. Well, there's been another recent sighting of a Mokeli Mbembe in uh, South Central Africa. We'll check in with Bill and talk, him, talk to him about that. All right. We are about to uh, welcome aboard author, researcher, former U.S. Army intelligence officer, Robert Galen Ross, who's here to discuss how the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy are all connected. He's here to explain who the shooters were, where they were standing when they fired their shots, who organized the events, and most importantly, perhaps, who wrote the checks to pay the killers of these four men. He's also here to reveal that people at the highest levels of the U.S. federal government and top levels of law enforcement were involved in all of these assassinations. Robert Galen Ross, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, uh, Richard. It's a pleasure talking to you again. Yes, and it was a great pleasure uh, meeting you down in uh, the wonderful Pecan Valley in uh, Texas when you and your new bride welcomed us into your home uh, to, uh, to interview you for our TV show. Yeah, we really enjoyed that. 
And are things just as dry down there as ever? Uh, we've had uh, about uh, three rains just in the last uh, couple of weeks, and uh, that's something we hardly recognized, but finally got used to it. It's about time, because uh, you were telling me when I, when I was down there that you had not had, and we, that was August, you had not had a, a, any rainfall since a year ago, September. That's right. So now you've got three... Well, I guess we we, brought, we must have brought that down with us from Canada. So I guess so. You're welcome. <laughs> you did a rain dance, I guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, how long has uh, the Elite Serial Killers uh, been out? This has been uh, it's been out quite a while, has it not, Robert? Uh, it came out in, uh, in it was, uh, 1996, something like that. It's hard to imagine, though, that there would be... For many people I'm listening, I'm guessing, that there would be a connection between the assassination of Abraham Lincoln back in 1865 and then, you know, a, a hundred years later, the assassination of, uh, of JFK, MLK, and RFK. But you're, 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 you're maintaining that there is a connection. Yeah, and it's not a... Uh... Uh, connection of the same people, but the same families. The uh, Rothschild family was uh, directly behind uh, the killing of Lincoln, and through their, their agents, uh, they were involved in the killing of JFK. We're, we're talking about uh, a, a big banking interest, international uh, bankers, whether it's, uh, you know, they go by many names, they come from many places, the Rockefellers, uh, you know, uh, British... Uh, British imperialists, Anglo-American, the Anglo-American establishment. The, the, the motive here behind Lincoln was 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 similar to JFK. Exactly. Uh, uh, Lincoln needed uh, money to finance the Civil War, and so at that time the Rothschilds in London and Paris were charging twenty-four and thirty-six percent interest on their loans. So Lincoln got the hot idea that uh, he went to his Secretary of Treasury, Solomon Chase, and instructed him to print uh, greenbacks, or print paper money, which they called greenbacks because uh, it, had, it was green on one side. And uh, they actually printed uh, $449 million worth of uh, these greenbacks and put them in circulation, and it was very successful. This was government-issued debt-free money as opposed to... Well, they, there was, a, a, I guess, a, a, a Bank of America sort of similar to the Federal Reserve in operation in the U.S. at the time that was, was essentially printing the money, issuing debt money. Yes. And this and, was owned uh, by the they, British... They had a, uh, uh, a charter a couple of times to uh, have a central bank here in the United States, and, and at the end of each charter, it was uh, not renewed. And uh, so they finally did their death blow in 1913 when they created the Federal Reserve System, which was a uh, central bank uh, under their control. So when Lincoln made the decision that the U.S. government was going to print its own money rather than uh, borrowing from the international uh, banking uh, elite, that sealed his fate. So That's right. So was John Wilkes Booth the actual gunman? He was, and but he was a member of a secret group called Knights of the Golden Circle. It was, uh, was created by the Rothschilds, and the purpose of the Knights of the Golden Circle was to split the United States into two uh, sanctions, uh, the South and the North, and have them go to war and uh, 
and run up uh, terrible debts to finance the wars. And then uh, the Rothschilds that had uh, the, uh, I believe it was the French Army stationed in, uh, no, it was the British Army stationed in Canada, and the, and the French and uh, Spanish armies stationed in Mexico. And uh, once the uh, the Civil War had killed off as many people as they could and then they'd burned up all their gunpowder and so forth and gone into debt, Rothschilds would issue instructions to these two armies to invade the United States and take it over and bring it back under the control of, of the British crown. It's been and, uh, Lincoln got word of that, and so he contacted the Tsar of Russia and told him what was going on. And so the Tsar of Russia sent uh, a couple of his fleets over to the United States. Uh, he uh, had one uh, anchor off the uh, New York City and another one uh, off Florida, another one over down in the Gulf of Mexico, another one off of California, and informed the French and the uh, British and the Spanish that if, if they invaded the United States, that Russia was going to take the side of the North and, and would uh, destroy their armies. And so that, uh, that really uh, didn't uh, bode well for the Tsar of Russia uh, in the eyes of the Rothschilds. In fact, uh, during the Bolshevik War, and I think one of the reasons for the Bolshevik War is to take revenge not on the Tsar during Lincoln's time, but the Tsar at the time of 1917 to get revenge. And uh, so the Bolsheviks actually killed something like 66 million people to uh, destroy the uh, uh, middle-class people in uh, Russia. The elite serial killers of Lincoln, JFK, RFK, and MLK. Robert, Gale, and Ross, uh, my guest here on The Conspiracy Show. Let's take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, we'll find out what... Uh, the assassination of JFK had to do with the assassination of Lincoln. How are they connected? Robert Gale and Ross connects the dots. We'll make the phone lines available to you as well if you'd like to uh, question or comment. My guest, 416-360-0740-416-740-07... I'm sorry, 416-360-0740 and toll-free from just about anywhere, 866-740-4740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Robert Galen Ross, I've been calling him Robert, but I know uh, you, you prefer uh, Galen, will... Um We'll go with Galen, uh, the author of The Elite Serial Killers of Lincoln, RFK, J- sorry, JFK, RFK, and MLK. So many acronyms there. I have to get them uh, lined up correctly. Uh, 
much has been, there's been a lot of speculation over the years, uh, Galen, about John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, that, um, uh, first of all, that it wasn't him, but secondly, that he actually uh, survived, uh, you know, was not, uh, was not uh, captured, apprehended and shot, uh, that he was spirited out of the United States and, um, uh, or out of uh, Maryland, uh, at the very least, and, and lived a, a long, long life. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, now John Wilkes Booth did uh, kill Lincoln. There's uh, plenty of, maybe a, several hundred witnesses to that effect. But uh, he, after killing uh, Lincoln, he jumped down to the stage and, and uh, broke a little bone in his foot. And uh, uh, so they, they started to try to grab him, and he pulled his knife and, and fought him off and, and was able to get out the back door and had a friend uh, waiting there with his horse, and they, he got on his horse, and they rode off into the dark. And so the, uh, they finally ended up in the uh, tobacco barn, and the, the soldiers were following them. And uh, so the soldiers uh, surrounded the, or they went to the front of the, of the barn and hollered at Booth and said, come out or we're going to... We're going to set the barn on fire and kill you. And so they waited a little while, and he didn't come out, so they started shooting. And in the meantime, Booth slipped out the back door and found his horse and, and rode to the coast and, and got on a ship and sailed to uh, England, went to London to the Rothschilds and collected his final payment uh, at the time he shot uh, Lincoln, he had $8,000 in cash on him. And in, in those times, $8,000 was a, a major fortune. And, uh, but he collected his uh, remainder of his uh, payoff from the Rothschilds in, uh, in London, got on another ship and sailed to uh, Bombay, India. And he retired in 14 years after he killed Lincoln, uh, in Bombay, India. How do how do you know this? How are you able to track down this? I mean, do you have canceled checks? Do, uh, have you seen well, his name on a ship's in, in manifest? The case of uh, Lincoln, uh, his granddaughter Isola Forrester uh, was not satisfied with uh, what everybody was saying about her grandfather. So she interviewed a lot of people, including uh, several of the soldiers that were there at the tobacco barn, and they said that uh, the guy that they turned in for the reward was a fellow, a red-headed fellow, and she knew that that was not Booth because Booth had raven black hair, not red hair. But uh, they, they were able to collect their reward, the reward that uh, was posted for what they called was uh, Lincoln, I mean, called Booth. But uh, he got away. And But uh, Isola also had got, got some copies of some letters that, Booth wrote uh, from Bombay back to some friends here in the United States. So Isola Forrester, in, in a book, she, it's a 500-page book she wrote titled One Mad Act by Isola Forrester. Is where I got a lot of that evidence. And in terms of, of, of uh, tracing uh, John Wilkes Booth's steps back to uh, England and then Bombay, how, how did you determine that? Uh, that was through uh, Isola Forrester's book. And how was she able to? I mean, you've you've read the book. How was she able to to do that? I mean, were there was there a paper trail at least? Uh, I don't. It's been probably five or six years since I've 
read that book and I don't remember exact details, but she did uh, have and, some witnesses and some paper trail to the fact that he did uh, go to London. And he, and he lived out his life, the rest of his life in Bombay? Yeah. All right. Let's uh, grab a couple of quick calls and then we'll move on to, uh, to JFK. Let's start first with Sydney here in Toronto. Good evening, Sydney. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, hi, Richard. Hello. It's Sydney White. Yes, I'm going to announce as well when I'm through speaking my class is starting tomorrow night. Uh, but anyway, this man is right on about why, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I know he's going to be totally right about why all these people were killed, and they were killed for the same reason. The only war, really, is who will print the money of a nation. The government, the people, print the money, or you hand it over to a bunch of greedy pawnbrokers. And that's really what's still hurting the whole world. I teach monetary reform, so I know uh, he's right about that part. I don't know anything about Bombay or or where Wilkes Bruce ended up. I do know that there was a huge sum of money put in uh, a bank in Montreal in aid of this, absolutely. And the Bank of England was involved. And he's certainly right about Rothschild, because uh, at 1815, when uh, Napoleon lost, Rothschild uh, owned all the uh, shares, uh, bonds of England, uh, by what he did in the uh, in the exchange. He put on a little act, and he uh, bought them all up when everybody sold them off. He bought them up for next to nothing. He owned England. So, yes, Rothschild is still running that today. Anybody who teaches monetary reform is aware of that. So he's, he's right. I just wanted to announce, though, that studies in propaganda will be resuming tomorrow night, Monday, October 3rd. And we will be, of course, on the University of Toronto campus, and we will be in the Lash Miller building at 80 St. George Street. We'll be in Lecture Hall 159. And uh, thanks so much for letting me call that in. All right, Sydney. You're, you're a very informed lady. You're correct in everything you said. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I belong to the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform for many, many years. And you are so right. So, so just go ahead with it. I'm enjoying it. All right, well, Sydney. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you okay. for that. Uh, Galen, let's uh, move on 100 years. And um, uh, November 22nd, 63 in Daly Plaza, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The motive, again, had to do with uh, Kennedy's decision to print government-issued debt-free money. Is that is that correct? Uh, that's correct. That was one of the major uh, reasons. He actually printed $4.3 billion worth of silver certificates. Silver certificates. Which were redeemable at any federal bank in, in gold. I mean, in silver. So, uh, uh, he printed $4.3 billion worth of silver certificates. Lincoln printed $449 million worth of greenbacks. And in both cases, uh, that was directly uh, uh, opposed to what the uh, Rothschilds wanted. The Rothschilds had a monopoly and still have a monopoly on the printing of money and the establishment of credit. But if the... Um if the the uh, the silver certificates or the greenbacks in Lincoln's case, if that money was still deposited 
into the various uh, chartered banks, and, and many of those banks were sort of member banks for the, uh, in the case of Kennedy, it would have been the Federal Reserve and, and so forth. What, what difference does it matter? I mean, they still had sort of a fractional reserve banking system, did they not? So if that money was deposited in their banks, why would they care? Who printed it? Well, because uh, it was uh, debt-free money. It was silver, silver certificates, and they were able to, uh, anyone that owned it could go to a Federal uh, Reserve Bank and, and get that amount of money in silver. And they didn't want to do that. And so Lincoln's, or sorry, Kennedy's uh, supposed gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, um, well, first of all, do, do you believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman, or was he a patsy, or what was his involvement, the degree of his involvement? Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was absolutely a patsy, and uh, he was on the sixth floor at the time the shooting took place, but he didn't touch a gun that day. Uh, within uh, minutes after the shots were fired, uh, he was found on the second floor of, the, of this building drinking a Coke. And I'm convinced that he was under uh, mind control, and uh, there's a lot of evidence to that effect. And uh, But there were a total of something like 14 people that were involved in, in the actual uh, shooting uh, group. Uh, on the sixth floor, there were two shooters and one lady that was operating a radio. On Behind the grassy knoll, there were two shooters and one radio operator. Uh, in the On top of the Dallas County Records uh, building, there was one shooter and one radio operator. And, uh, and then in the... Uh, there's a Dow Tech's building. There was, on the second floor, there was one shooter and one radio operator. My word, and it seems the like the only one that... of the school book depository building was a group of four people. And this fellow that, uh, named Cliff Carter was at the controls of, of a radio on a walkie-talkie, and he's the one that told them all to shoot at the same time. And... Uh, that's reason for the radio operators at all the four positions. Fourteen shooters. Yeah. Well, there were not fourteen people. There were actually six shooters involved. Seems like the only and one that one didn't have a gun was Jackie. Shot. I'm sorry? It seems like the only one that didn't have a gun that day was Jackie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and the, the uh, limousine driver. Now, and they, they, they changed the parade route at the very last minute, uh, I yes. understand. Not the last minute, but the last, within the last day. Uh, how were they able to pull that off? I mean, if it, if it was, for example, if some have speculated, the mafia, what, uh, Sam Giancana, getting revenge because John's brother Bobby, uh, as attorney general, was clamping down on organized crime, that's one motive. I mean, the mafia wouldn't have had the power to change the parade route, the presidential parade route. So how do they do that? Well, the uh, the FBI was directly involved. Jed Hoover was directly involved. He was in town that day, or the town. He was in town the night before at a secret meeting, and uh, so he he controlled all the evidence. And uh, the CIA was involved. The mafia was involved. The FBI was involved. Why would the CIA need to involve the mafia? Uh, the the mafia and J. Uh, Edgar uh, Hoover said several times before Congress that uh, there's no such thing as uh, Cosa Nostra or the mafia. 
And the reason he said that is because he's in partners with them. And uh, so the the mafia was, uh, they, they supplied the, the shooters, the CIA supplied the rifles, and the FBI covered up all the evidence. And again, you attribute, the, the, the motive you're saying is Kennedy's decision to print government debt-free money. That, that was the main reason. He was also, uh, he had instructed uh, the defense uh, secretary to stop the Vietnam War and, and bring all the troops home. Or at least and not to escalate it. Yeah, they had advisors to, on the ground. They, they had advisors on the ground. I don't think they had gotten to the point yet of putting troops on the ground. So they, they, he, that was coming, but he basically said, we're not going to do that. Well, uh, the, the, the CIA was over there in Vietnam and Laos. Right. And uh, they were there. Uh, not, they're not supposed to have been there, but they were there. And uh, so... Uh, Kennedy had uh, issued instructions to bring all those uh, people back home, and, and just as soon as uh, Johnson took over, he rescinded uh, Kennedy's order. In fact, he accelerated the war and sent more troops over there because uh, Johnson uh, had uh, friends in the construction business, like uh, Brown and Root and, and a number of others, and they were uh, making a killing. Oh, and constructing uh, facilities there in Vietnam, and <clears throat> Johnson always uh, had his friends uh, lined up to take these uh, cushy jobs, and his cut was 10% in cash, and they always paid him. Johnson. Johnson. So... To what extent was he complicit? Uh, you know, on the back of cover uh, of uh, the elite serial killers, you've got this famous photograph. You've got uh, uh, John F. Kennedy uh, speaking, and in behind him, you've got uh, Ralph Yarborough, John Conley, of course, Texas governor, and uh, Lyndon B. Johnson giving Kennedy the, uh, uh, well, as you say here, if looks could kill. He's, um, he's got a very serious uh, look on, on, on his face. Johnson does. He's looking, it looks like he's looking right through Kennedy. And he was probably saying to himself, well, say what you want to, you Mick, uh, in two hours you're going to be dead. Is that how he referred to uh, the, the president? Yeah. He used yeah. that term? Yeah. He, uh, Johnson was a very crude person. Uh, he was uh, just, uh, he didn't care what he said or did, or uh, he didn't care about anybody. Uh, it was old Johnson, me, me, me. Okay, so we ha we have a number of motives. Uh, obviously, the, the the mafia were willing to participate. Uh, they were hired out uh, by the CIA. They were or contracted by the CIA. They're willing to participate because they want revenge because, as I say, Bobby was clamping down on organized crime. You've got the military-industrial complex that's concerned uh, because Kennedy is not going to escalate the war in Vietnam, and that's going to cost them untold billions of dollars. And Johnson is uh, uh, receiving kickbacks on that, so there's his connection. And then you've got, again, the international bankers concerned that uh, Kennedy is, is, is printing debt-free money. So listen, we'll, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we've got to then explain how this all connects to the assassination of Martin Luther King, a civil rights leader. What does a civil rights leader like Martin Luther King have to do with the international banking system? Back with Robert Galen Ross, the elite serial killers, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Joining us at the bottom of the hour, the dinosaur hunter Bill Gibbons will tell us about his encounter with a sea monster this past summer and also fresh sightings of Mokeli Mbembe in uh, South Central Africa. Right now, Robert Gale and Ross uh, stays with us, the elite serial killers of Lincoln, JFK, RFK, and MLK. Uh, Gale, and you... Uh, are a retired intelligence officer. You worked with a branch of the National Security Agency, which is um, which is sort of big brother to the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, when did you at the time um, know about the, the CIA's connection to to Kennedy and his assassination? Uh, no, I was in Vietnam uh, back in uh, 1956 and 57 before the killing. And uh, at that time, I thought that what we were doing was an honorable thing to do. We were monitoring the uh, voice communications of the Chinese communists just across the DMZ. And uh, so we we didn't know anything about uh, connections of... Uh, in fact, at, at that time, I really didn't know very much about the mafia or the CIA or anybody, but... But I did uh, know the details of what was going on with the NSA. You know the old saying, though, once once CIA, always CIA. I mean, do you still have connections in the CIA? No, I, no? I, I never did have connections in CIA, except for my younger brother, who was a CIA agent. And uh, I've got a picture of him on my wall shaking hands with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush when he was CIA director and. uh but my, my younger brother would never admit the fact that he was CIA. I remember you told me that. Even on his deathbed, you asked him and he wouldn't tell you. He, he just grinned. So, I mean, how dangerous is, is it for you um, to talk openly about these things? Having once you know worked in, in the intelligence game, I mean, are you at any risk? I don't think I'm at risk at all. Uh, they they consider me as uh, just a gnat on the wall, and uh, they they know that I have no power, no control, no influence, and so they just completely ignore me. I've never had anyone contact me to say stop what you're saying or what you're saying is wrong. 
or anything in that regard. All right, let's work in another phone call before we get to uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. And Brent is also in Toronto. Thanks for holding on, Brent. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Uh, I actually just got back with a friend from Dallas on Thursday, and we did a tour with uh, JFK. There was a man named Ron Washington who was actually there when he was about four years old, and uh, he gave us a, a very good tour. He was saying it's about, and the question I had for your guest was, he was saying it's because of the Vietnam War that uh, JFK was assassinated. Well, as he's alluded, that was one of the motives that he wanted to, uh, he didn't want to escalate the uh, the war and commit troops. Uh, uh, Galen? Yeah, that that was one of the reasons, but the, the biggest reason was he created a silver certificate. Silver certificates, okay. And he also mentioned that uh, the biggest connection of all the people there was uh, Bush Sr. Uh, Bush Sr. was there. In fact, uh, I've got a a photograph of him leaning up against the wall of the Texas School Book Depository building shortly after the shooting. And uh, and then I also have a letter uh, that was uh, uh, stamped uh, uh, secret, which uh, uh, stated the fact that uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was in Dallas that day. He was a sort of the a CIA field officer on the scene, and and it was a lot of his intelligence uh, or information that uh, that led to the arrest of Oswald, was it not? I, I'm not sure about that because I, I didn't learn of his involvement until uh, oh, about uh, four years ago when I. I ran across that photograph. Yeah, I've seen some documentation signed by Bush, uh, and uh, and he was the one that was apparently feeding a lot of the information about about Oswald, and and uh, this is how they were able to uh, ascertain his his guilt so quickly, supposedly. Well, well he was a CIA agent for many years, mm-hmm. and uh, later became the director of CIA, and so the CIA, as I said earlier, they supplied the the rifles for that killing, and uh, the uh, Mafia supplied the shooters. All right, let's uh, move ahead to uh, uh, April of 1968 and uh, the Lorraine Motel, Memphis, Tennessee, and the assassination of Martin Luther King. Now, he's there uh, speaking to a... um, uh, There was a a garbage strike, uh, I believe. uh, Yes. The the union uh, members there trying to rally the troops. They were having a parade that day. Right. Now, what does... What does the international banking system want Martin Luther King dead for? Well, uh, King was uh, also uh, talking against the Vietnam War and all many of his speeches talking up about it. And and uh, H. L. Hunt, Pent Merkson, Brown and Root, and Bechtel were construction companies making uh, fortunes off the Vietnam War, and so they need to stop King from talking against the Vietnam War, and also King was uh, uh, addressing uh, the people of the South, the blacks in the South, of their civil rights and and causing unrest. And, and he also, Johnson thought that uh, King might uh, cause the South to vote against him in the, in the next race. And uh, But uh, Hoover was uh, directly involved in... Uh, the uh, King killing, uh, he, in fact, he had uh, a number of people there uh, in the scenes. Uh, there was a, a small team in case uh, James Earl Ray missed uh, uh, shooting King. 
there's another backup team there to shoot him. Now, James Earl Ray was supposedly um, uh, in, a, in a flop house uh, above a, um, a grill or a restaurant across the street yeah, from the Jim's Lorraine. Grill. Jim's Grill across the street from the Lorraine uh, Motel, where, where MLK was, was gunned down as he looked out over his balcony. And you, you've never believed that James Earl Ray was the trigger man. Uh, you visited him in, in uh, the prison hospital when he was dying uh, of cancer. Why don't you believe James Earl Ray was the trigger man? Well, uh, first, uh, I spent an hour with James Earl Ray and his brother uh, Jerry in uh, Nashville Prison Hospital. Uh, Jerry had, uh, I mean, James had uh, cancer of the liver and died two weeks after I interviewed him for an hour. And uh, But there's a fellow in uh, Memphis named uh, John Billings, and I spent a couple of nights in his home, uh, guest in his home, and and... When I was getting ready to leave, uh, he said, there, there's, there's a fellow in Texas that uh, knows all about details about the killing of King. He says his name is Willie Lewis Akins. If you can run him down and uh, convince him somehow to tell you the truth, you'll get all the details from Willie Lewis Akins. So when I got back home, it didn't take me very long to find him, and he was uh, actually on death row prison in, in the prison in, uh, west uh, or east of Huntsville, Texas. And I actually was able to interview him four times there in the prison. And, and each time he would he would not allow me to uh, film him talking about the killing of King, but he allowed me to video his uh, all of his case that he was involved in. He was arrested for one one uh, kilo of cocaine and uh, on uh, Highway 30 between Dallas and uh, and Memphis, and uh, tried and with a uh, with a jury and found guilty. And so he he told me uh, all the details of his arrest and why he was in prison, and also he, he told me that on on camera. But he said, now turn the camera off and I'll tell you the details of uh, the King killing. And what was his involvement? What was his involvement in, in Martin Luther King's uh, death? Uh, he was not involved. He, he arrived uh, in, in Memphis two days after King had been killed. And uh, he needed a job, and so he got a job as a uh, taxi cab driver uh, from a fellow named Lloyd Jowers. And uh, Lloyd Jowers uh, owned Jim's Grill across the street from the Lorraine Hotel. And uh, so Jowers and uh, Willie Akins became close friends. In fact, they they uh, were involved in uh, contract killings of a number of people around uh, Memphis for the uh, mafia. And uh, so after I turned my camera off there in, in prison, uh, Willie said, now, uh, he, he gave me all the details of what happened that day, and he said, the reason I know that is uh, Lloyd Jowers and I were out drinking one night, and he got skunk drunk, and, and, and he started just running off the mouth and, and, and told me all the details that he was involved. He was the one that shot King. and In fact, uh, what he said, if you can get me out of prison, I'll take you where the, the place where the rifle is uh, hidden. And I'll let you have it. 
So Lloyd Jowers... The way I could get him out of prison because he was in on a 30-year sentence for cocaine. So Lloyd Jowers, the owners, the owner of Jim's Grill, why does, yes. why does he uh, want King dead? And, and what does he uh, have to do with international banking? He was a contract killer. A contract killer, okay. Yeah. And he, he was contacted by whom? Who was he paid by off by? The by? Mafia, by the Carlos mafia. By the mafia. out of uh, New Orleans. Okay, let's continue to follow the money. So the mafia hires Lloyd Jowers. Who contracts the mafia to hire Lloyd Jowers to kill King? H.L. Hunt. H.L. Uh, Hunt, uh, in fact, I have copies of uh, the uh, four checks that were written to pay off the killers, and they were written on H.L. Hunt's escrow account, number 78, and uh, I've got check numbers and all the details except the names were redacted on the people that received it, but but I know where the checks are, and one of these days I'm going to get my hands on those. H.L. Hunt, the uh, the oil magnate. That's right. Okay, so H.L. Hunt, oil magnate, hires the mafia, who hires Lloyd Jowers, who owns Jim's Grill, to kill Martin Luther King. That's they, right. They set up James Earl Ray as the patsy. Right. How did they do that? How did they frame Jer- James Earl Ray? Uh, James was contacted by a fellow named Raul, which was an undercover FBI agent. And he had called uh, James and, and asked him to meet him at uh, Jim's Grill. To uh, he wanted to involve him in, a, in a, a gun deal he had going. So James showed up there to Jim's Grill and met him. And and uh, James was a petty criminal. Told James to uh, to go to the local gun store and buy a rifle with a scope on it. So James got in his uh, uh, car and drove over to local gun shop and bought a two forty three caliber rifle with a scope on it and brought it back and Raul looked at it and he says, You idiot, that's a that's a wrong caliber. You you go back and trade it in for a thirty out six. The reason he had to have a thirty out six is because that was the caliber of the rifle that Lord Jowers used to, to shoot King. And so the the bullets had to match up. In other words, they're setting James O. Ray up. He thinks he's in that's on right. some petty deal, some some gun deal, because he's a petty criminal, admittedly. Uh, yeah, he is, uh, in fact, his father and his uh, brother Jerry and, and he were just uh, petty criminals, uh, just committing all sorts of minor crimes all over. So they send him to pick up a thirty odd 6 because that matches the, the, uh, the murder weapon. Right. He takes the thirty odd 6 back to his flop house and then does what? Well, uh, he actually uh, uh, went upstairs... And uh, all of a sudden, he heard a shot. And so, being a criminal, he was afraid that uh, he might get involved in it. So, he uh, left and went down, got in his car, and drove to the airport. And on the way, he heard on the radio that uh, James Earl Ray was the uh, uh, suspected killer of Martin Luther King. And so, he, he got on an airplane and flew to... Canada, and from there he flew to London, and from there he flew to Portugal and stayed in Portugal for a couple of weeks. And he was getting running low on money, so he went back to London and, and actually ran out of money and, uh, and committed a petty a crime there and was arrested, and then they got to check in his name and, and found out he was wanted in the United States. So, so like John Wilkes Booth before him, he flees to London. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, is there a connection between H.L. Hunt, who's sort of the, the big oil man who orchestrated this, 
uh, and again the uh, the Federal Reserve or you know the international uh, well, bankers. Well, H. L. Hunt uh, at that time he claimed to be the richest man in the world. Uh, he probably wasn't, but uh, the Rothschilds were. And uh, so he was uh, very close friends with a, John, a fellow named John J. McCloy, who was a Rothschild agent in the United States. And uh, at the time of the killing, uh, John J. McCloy was an agent for the Rothschilds. He was uh, chairman of the board of the Council of Foreign Relations. He was also chairman of the board of the Chase Manhattan Bank. And David Rockefeller controlled the Chase Manhattan Bank. David Rockefeller was a, an agent of the Rothschilds. So that's the involvement of the Rothschilds in, in the King killing. Wasn't McCloy also on the Warren Commission? <laughs> Strangely enough, Johnson appointed him on the Warren Commission to uh, find out the real truth behind the, uh, the killing of, uh, of Kennedy. Interesting, yes. And, uh, the fox is minding the hen house, as they say. That's right, and, uh, and, and the funny part about it is that the night before Kennedy was killed, there was a uh, social event at... Uh, Ben Merson's house off Preston Avenue in North Dallas. And uh, there's 50, at least 50 people attended, and uh, half of them were members of the, of the media, and the other half were friends of uh, uh, Clint Merson. And uh, uh, Madeline Brown, she was Linda Johnson's mistress for 21 years, gave birth to his own and known son. And any time Johnson was in Texas, she would uh, be arranged for her to be nearby in case he could slip off and, and be with her. And uh, so she was uh, hobnobbing with all the big social people there because of her connection with Johnson, and she was invited to be there that night. And so she didn't know Johnson was going to show up. And uh, so about oh, 11.15, 11.30, something like that in the evening, the party was about to break up when Johnson walked in the front door. And, and uh, so Clinton Merson stood up and said, okay, man, we can have our meeting now. And so 25 men went into the uh, conference room. And uh, so uh, during this meeting, uh, they were to, the purpose of the meeting was to discuss the uh, cover-up of the evidence for the killings take place the next day and I'll tell you a few of the <clears throat> people that were in this secret meeting is Clint Merkson was there it's his house and H.L. Uh, Hunt was there uh, Lyndon Johnson was there George Brown uh, owner of Brown and Root John J. McCloy was there now that, that, that shows his connection in the killing of JFK because he's an agent of the Rothschilds was Nixon there uh Nixon was there, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Clyde Tolson, who was Hoover's uh, boyfriend. Uh, Earl Cabell was the mayor of Dallas. Uh, Amon G. Carter, Jr., founder of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Buford Ross Sheffield, uh, John Currington, uh, R.L. Thornton was uh, former mayor of Dallas. Now, John Conley was in this meeting, too. Uh, he was at the time. At that time, he was governor of Texas, so he knew that the shots were going to be fired the next day. And we know a lot of this because of uh, uh, Johnson's mistress. 
That's right. And what did Johnson, and, uh, after that meeting, what did Johnson tell his mistress? Uh, Johnson came, when the meeting was over, Johnson came out and he saw Madeline and he went over and leaned over and she thought he was going to say, well, uh, I'll meet you at the hotel and so forth. And what he actually said was, after tomorrow, that blankety-blank Mick uh, Kennedy is never going to embarrass me again. That's not a threat. That's a promise. After tomorrow, being November 22nd. That's right. And then next day, uh, he called her on the phone uh, before the uh, JFK killing and and said, Now, remember, after, uh, after today, that, that uh, SOB will never embarrass me again. Something I've never understood about uh, about Johnson's involvement, uh, uh, Galen, in, in either the Kennedy assassination or, well, he was president, of course, um, when uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Yeah. Here we have Johnson um, and his Great Society program spending uh, billions of dollars on social programs, which which uh, was ostensibly, you know, to help uh, the, the 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 urban poor. Many blacks benefited from that. We have also uh, it was it was people forget. I mean, it was it was Johnson, not Kennedy, because Kennedy's life was cut short. But it was Johnson who passed much of the civil rights legislation. That's right. It seems like a contradiction if if we're painting Johnson sort of as the villain here. Well, Johnson was he was there and he was involved, and uh, you, you won't find his fingerprints on anything. But he he was uh, he gave the orders, and things happened, and. In fact, the, uh, the one of the shooters of uh, uh, JFK was also at this secret meeting, a fellow named Mike Wallace. He was Johnson's number one hitman in Texas. And uh, Johnson's uh, uh, campaign manager, uh, Cliff Carter, is one that uh, issued the orders to Mike Wallace. And actually that day, Mike Wallace was on the sixth floor and his job was to kill Conley, and he shot him, but he, he didn't die. Conley was at the meeting, and... and uh, he was at the secret meeting, and so he knew that, that, that the killing was going to take place the next day, and, and he was sitting right in front of Kennedy. Of course. So, uh, and and it, when the shots were fired, there were several witnesses standing very close to the, the car, and they heard uh, Conley say, My God, they are going to kill us all. They is not one person. They is a bunch of people. Mm. We just have a few minutes, uh, uh, Galen. Uh, we've yet to cover um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, of course, a couple months after Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Of course, it was it was Robert F. Kennedy who announced it to, to many people. Uh, he, when he was out on the campaign trail, he had to tell uh, the people that Martin Luther King had been uh, been assassinated. And there was great debate as whether he should announce it. He was, there was a fear that he might create a riot. Um, however, he delivered uh, what, is, uh, what is seen as one of the greatest speeches of all time, certainly in American politics, and, and uh, was able to settle uh, people down in, in announcing that um, Martin Luther King had been, had, had been killed. Uh, what is the connection between big oil, international banking, and the assassination of RFK? Well, now, Bobby Kennedy, uh, he had a lot of people mad at him. Uh, uh, the the mafia was mad at him because uh, he was uh, trying to put all of them in prison. And, uh, in fact, uh, this uh, Sam, uh, no, his, uh, uh, no, 
Oh, it was uh, Sam Giancana. Yes. Uh, there was several uh, uh, congressional hearings or Senate hearings, and 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 Bobby and Giancana hollered at one another back and forth, arguing, and and so uh, Bobby tried to uh, get Giancana uh, put in prison, and he couldn't get the evidence on him, and and so on on uh, Giancana's papers, he said he was from Guatemala. Actually, he was from Sicily. And uh, so Bobby just said, well, we, we'll take care of him. They, they, they arrested him, put him on an airplane, and flew him to uh, down to Guatemala, put him on a truck with his lawyer, and they drove him way back out in the jungles at the end of a dirt road and made him get out, and they had to walk back. And So Sam Jen kind of didn't, didn't have a whole lot of regard for Bobby Kennedy. And, and so J. Edgar Hoover was involved because... Uh, uh, Bobby was uh, Attorney General at the time, but uh, uh, Ted Hoover never listened listened to Bobby on anything, and so the only way Bobby could uh, uh, get to the real evidence uh, or the truth about uh, killing his brother was to b- become president and uh, and fire Hoover and bring in a, a Attorney General that would do the proper investigation and so Hoover didn't want to lose his job and so Hoover was uh, involved in uh, destroying the evidence in, in the RFK killing they didn't interview a lot of the key witnesses that, that knew a lot of the facts uh, and so the, the Bobby Kennedy killing was an absolute cover up by the CIA and the and FBI and what about big oil uh, do we see uh, H.L. Hunt's fingerprints on this one, too, as we did in, in JFK and MLK? Uh, I couldn't find his fingerprints on it, but uh, this this crowd uh, all met uh, regularly and, and uh, had their fun and, 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 and made their big business deals and, and arranged for killings here and there, and so... Uh, there's no question that Hunt was probably involved in it, but I, I was, couldn't find his fingerprints. Was Bobby, uh, like his brother before him, John F. Kennedy, trying to close some loop tax loophole that benefited Big Oil? Uh, he was Attorney General at that time, and uh, so I'm sure he was trying to uh, do bad things for the oil companies. Wasn't there some sort of a, a, a an oil depletion tax? Uh, that yeah, that was... Uh, that was what JFK was trying to do. He was going to eliminate the oil depletion uh, uh, tax uh, law. Which would have cost the oil companies billions. Yeah, there are lots of lots of taxes uh, okay. to pay for it. So do we know whether Bobby was planning, promising to do the same thing if elected president? I don't have any evidence of it. No, okay. So, the, so we have this intertwined cabal of big oil, intelligence, uh, the intelligence community, organized crime, international bankers, uh, all sitting around together and deciding who lives and who dies, basically. That's right. And this goes back to the days of Lincoln. I mean, obviously, in Lincoln's day, we weren't talking about Vietnam, but there was still sort of this military-industrial complex. It wasn't Vietnam, but it was the Civil War. And, and the, uh, the Rothschilds uh, owned, owned the banking, and they, su- they su- uh, supplied all the money. And, and when Lincoln came out with his own money, that, that, that really made them mad. 
Let me ask you a, a final question in, in parting, Galen. If a president were elected, let's say it was someone like Ron Paul, Congressman Ron Paul, who's been very vocal about the Federal Reserve and it's time to go back uh, to the gold standard and, and uh, government issued money and abolish the Federal Reserve and it's time to, uh, to audit the Federal Reserve. And again, we're talking about um, you know, the, the, the international banking uh, establishment or cabal. What would happen to Ron Paul if elected president on that platform? If if there was any danger that he might even be the front runner uh, running for president, uh, I'm convinced that all of a sudden he would commit suicide for some reason or or be involved in some sort of accident. Uh, uh, the CIA has a lot of ways they can kill someone without leaving any evidence, but uh, I don't think he would survive it. It is interesting uh, in in the. Um, the uh, preliminary race for the White House and the Republican um, uh, looking for their nominee and, of course, Ron Paul in, involved in the debates and so forth. Uh, the last time he ran and, and was doing quite well in some of the primaries, he finished second in Nevada, for example, and he he was barely even mentioned by the mainstream media. Do you think that, that, the, that there's... Um, a conspiracy there that the media is being controlled by the same the same cabal of oil organized crime intelligence that's right and and they don't give uh, ron paul any media exposure at all and uh fox channel is is the only one that uh, ever even brings up his name uh even when he comes in second or third uh, the uh, mainstream news media will say that the top runners are blah, 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 but they leave out Ron Powell. Interesting, interesting. Well, listen, um, Galen, always a pleasure. Thank you for this. And um, uh, if people are interested in uh, getting a hold of uh, your your book, and, you, and this is just one of many books, uh, delving into this sort of the same topic, how do they do that? How do they get a, a copy? Uh, they can uh, uh, call my toll-free number, which is also available in Canada, and it's 800 800- Four one zero five five seven one. That's eight hundred four one zero five five seven one. Or they can check my website, which is www dot the number four r i e dot com. Either way, www dot the number four r i e dot com. That's correct. Galen, thanks for this. It's a pleasure, Richard, and uh, look forward to seeing you in March. Uh, same here. Yes, we're going to spend some time together down on the uh, the Gulf Coast. Really looking forward to that. All right, Galen Ross. I've enjoyed it, Richard. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When we come back, a few words with our uh, our birthday lady and her friend, Vanessa and Megan, and then we'll uh, check in with the dinosaur hunter, Bill Gibbons. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show on AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Next week on the program, Sunday, October 9th, the return of Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. She joins us the second Sunday of every month, although last month, of course, we, um, we did not hook up with Rosemary, it being the, uh, the 10th anniversary of the uh, 9-11 attacks, and we had to devote the entire program to that. Uh, naturally. All right, before we check in with the dinosaur hunter, Bill Gibbons, and it's been quite a while, always uh, excited to talk to Bill and his adventures. This is a real-life Indiana Jones, if ever there was one. Uh, I'm going to check in with my in-studio focus group here. Uh, Vanessa uh, recently celebrated her 16th birthday and uh, part of her her surprise uh, present uh, arranged by her mother, uh, secretively. It's a conspiracy. (laughs) <laughs> arranged for uh, Vanessa to come into the radio station to watch her, f- or to listen and watch her uh, favorite radio program, The Conspiracy Show, which she um, she listens to faithfully on podcasts and so forth. Uh, and uh, she brought her friend Megan. So you're both 16? Yes. Vanessa, you just turned. Megan, uh, you both go to the same high school. So you're listening to this program. How do you feel? Does this, does this sort of information make you, make you cynical? Does it make you... I mean, we heard earlier from, from Jeffrey Steinberg talking about, you know, an impending worldwide depression, and then we have Robert Galen Ross talking about, um, you know, people in, in positions of authority, people that we trust uh, being perhaps involved in the assassination of other political figures. How does that make you feel uh, as young 16-year-olds? Anyone, jump in. Um, it makes, I don't feel cynical or I don't have bad feelings toward the government. I feel that I don't know enough still that I don't know the whole story. I only know one side of it. Right. And so in order to feel such a strong emotion because of an event, I feel like I need to know both sides. So what do you normally do after you hear a program and you're hearing information like this? Do you go online? Do you go to the library and, and read a book about JFK or whatever? How do you sort out the the fact from the fiction or the wheat from the chaff, as we say? We go to each other. <laughs> right, and you talk about it. Yeah, we went to the library for the past couple of lunches at school researching JFK and Martin Luther King Jr., all the stuff that we were going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. Try to get some background knowledge on it. So. And based on your preliminary research, what do you what do you make of the? Do you think the John F. Kennedy assassination happened the way that we've been told that Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone gunman? I definitely think there's more to it than what we're told, mm-hmm. but not really sure what yet. <laughs> okay, and completely you? agree with Megan. There's definitely some undertone of mystery lurking there. Right. Right. And so what did you think of what our last guest had to say, that the same sorts of people, the same sorts of vested interests, big oil, international bankers, were involved in, in, in all of these killings to some degree? How does that make you feel? Does, that, does it sound plausible? Does it sound fantastical, ridiculous? It doesn't sound ridiculous. If it's the same people with the same interests, then like throughout history, those same types of people would reoccur and then be a part of the same organizations. So it would make sense. Right. So what are you going to do after this show? Are you going to go back to the library, read more, or are you going to let it go and move on to something else? Definitely read more, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. What do your friends uh, think of, of your passion or your interest in this, in this type of uh, information? Do you talk about it with them? 
Definitely a lot. <laughs> do they roll their eyes? Do they... We get mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. Whenever we bring it up, we'll go on a little tangent amongst <laughs> each other, getting excited and all worked up and questioning each other. And then they'll just look at us and... We've got a couple friends into it, though. Our one friend bought a book on conspiracies and gave it to us to look at as well, so... Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But again... You know, when you have these discussions, it's important to remember just because it's in a book, mm-hmm. just because Robert Galen Ross wrote about it doesn't mean it's it's true, right? Yeah. We, ha- we have to do our own research. That's the, that's the takeaway, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Great. Well, it's been really fun having you here. We're going to speak to uh, a real live dinosaur hunter, perhaps. That is so exciting. <laughs> All right. And then we'll check in with you before uh, before the end of the show. Awesome. Thanks right. for having us. That being said... It's been uh, quite a while since we checked in with Congo Bill, Scottish explorer. Uh, he's uh, led several expeditions to southwest or South Central Africa in search of an elusive creature some say may be an apatosaurus. And uh, he is uh, an author uh, and a, an incredible storyteller. Uh, you've seen him on, um, on I believe, uh, Monster Quest a number of times, and it's a great pleasure to have Bill Gibbons back on the show. Hello, I should say Dr. Bill Gibbons. Hello, Bill. Yes, uh, great to be on the show again, Richard. And I must say, uh, I was listening with great interest to the two young ladies here. Um, I, too, have done quite a bit of research into uh, the Kennedy assassination, the Monroe death, and even the death of Noree Shatner, uh, William Shatner's wife. And I think there are some very suspicious circumstances in all three of those cases. Um, not just being a conspiracy theorist, you probably know that I'm a licensed private investigator as well. Yes, so. you wear you wear many hats. Many Indeed, hats. yeah. Well, it, uh, variety is the spice of life, as they say, you know. But most of my investigative work has been involved in cryptozoology, as you know. Yes, cryptozoology is uh, certainly your passion, and uh, I mean, I would love to sit down over beers and talk to you about uh, Marilyn Monroe and. Uh, uh, JFK, but for now, right. while time allows, you had a very interesting summer. Indeed. Um, going back uh, to Saturday, July 2nd, um, my family and I went out to British Columbia uh, to Lake Okanagan, and we were staying at the Lake Okanagan Resort uh, for a reason. We were going to meet David Wetzel and his family, and as you know, David and I first went to Cameroon to look for Mokele and Bambi back in the year 2000. November 2000, and um, that's what got us on the trail of the animal there. That seems to be where everything is happening. But as far as the Ogopogo was concerned, this seems to have been a pretty good year for sightings. Um, what we decided to do was was to rent a large motorboat or a motor launch, uh, an 11-seater. There was myself, my wife Terry, and my son Andrew, my youngest son, and David had his wife Gloria and his two children, Jonathan and Heidi. And so just after having a, a coffee, and we decided um, in the evening just to rent a boat and go out um, into the lake to an area that is a hotspot for Ogopogo sightings. Now, uh, we rented this boat, which was quite a, a fast uh, boat, but it took us 30 minutes to reach the northeast end of the lake, uh, a place, south of a place called Beach Bay. Now, as we approached that location, we powered down the engines. It was very, very calm. There was no boats in the immediate area to confuse the issue. There's no wakes, no, no uh, waves or anything of that nature. And the first thing we noticed was 
a lot of small fry began to bubble on the surface as if a predator was or predators were chasing them. Uh, and then a moment later, a huge upsurge of water about 30 feet away from the boat uh, as if something came right up from underneath the surface. Now, at that time, our depth reader was reading that we were in 140 feet of water, so quite deep. Um, we noticed that a large object ahead of us, very dark green in color, had broken the surface. Now, I had a pair of very good binoculars. Um, with me. Uh, these were Bushnell Trophy binoculars, 8 by 42 They were waterproof, fog-proof, gave me very good clarity and vision. Um, and I immediately focused my attention on that disturbance. And we counted three, maybe four humps just breaking the surface. Now, Dave Wetzel and my son Andrew um, observed what they thought was a brief snake-like head of the animal coming out of the water, very briefly, just for a second or two. Now, the whole encounter lasted about 10 or 12 seconds. The animal moved away from us very rapidly, um, heading towards the south shore, and threw up a tremendous wake as it uh, began to move away from the boat because the engine was still idling, and perhaps the, you know, the, the, the um, vibrations through the water may have disturbed it because it does sometimes come close to boats, but it can move away very rapidly. And so when David uh, got his Sony Super 8 video camera working, um, by that time the animal had slipped under the, just under the surface and left these tremendous wakes uh, and waves uh, behind it. But it was a quite a spectacular sighting. And uh, just, I think, a few weeks before us, a British family um, who were vacationing at the lake also had a very similar sighting uh, of the animal from the shore, from the south shore, thrashing about on the surface. So a very good year indeed for Ogopogo sightings. Well, how did how did you had children on board? How did they react? Were they horror struck? Were they were they fascinated? Were they very how? excited? Um, my my son Andrew, who's seventeen, and Jonathan Wetzel, who's fourteen, very mature fourteen year old, I must say, very smart lad. Um, immediately, they were very excited by this. They, they, they were immediately, uh, the, their attention was fixed on the animal as it came to the surface, and they were busy trying to memorize all the details, the three or four humps, a small dermal ridge or, or some kind of sail on the animal's back, but very small, but, but still distinguishable. And Andrew and, uh, was particularly excited because he saw what he thought was a, a brief head raising out of the water. Um, the ladies in the boat wanted to get back as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, um, they weren't as excited to see it, but they didn't want to hang around afterwards either. So, and, and for those uh, who, who would suggest, uh, Bill, that what you saw was some sort of giant eel or perhaps a sturgeon, you would respond how? Um, sturgeon, um, basically, I know what a sturgeon looks like. Um, when they do come to the surface, they have a particular ridge or knotted back. Um, you know, I mean, the sturgeon is a fish. And, uh, you know, this was not a fish. This was far too big um, and bulky. Um, as for a giant eel, eels, again, can swim on the surface, but they swim uh, from side to side, uh, you know. And, uh, but this creature swam vertically. So uh, this was too big to be either one of them. Sturgeon can grow quite big. They're a very ancient type of fish. We saw probably what we thought was... 10 to 12 feet of the visible surface of the animal, but we estimated its length overall. 
as it moved through the water to be in excess of 30 feet. So that's too big to be a sturgeon. Um, and it moved quite differently than an eel would move on the surface. And I've actually, as a fisherman, caught many, many eels, both in the sea and in freshwater lakes. Is, uh, is Ogopogo similar to Champy in, in uh, Lake Champlain in New York, the same sort of description? There seems to be some similarities. Um, with uh, Ogopogo, people that have seen the tail fluke of the animal remark uh, on how similar it is to the tail fluke of a whale or a dolphin, which suggests that we might be dealing with some sort of um, uh, an ancient whale, uh, you know, these long snake-like whales like the Bacillosaurus, for example. Um, people have speculated the same thing um, at Lake Champlain, but as you're aware, Sandy Mancy's famous 1977 photograph actually shows a long head, small neck coming out of the water. So that would be more in keeping with a Loch Ness type of uh, cryptid. Uh, and very, very quickly, uh, uh, Bill, there's been another sighting, a uh, recent sighting of uh, Mokeli Mbembe in, uh, is it in the Cameroon or in Congo? In Cameroon, my very good friend, the French researcher Michel Ballot, um, who has been out to Cameroon 26 or 27 times, um, he interviewed along the Jar River, where the, most of the sightings are happening, a fisherman from last June, only a few months ago, who observed the animal trying to eat some leaves. And again, he described the bulky body just breaking the surface of the water, the long, thin neck with the small snake-like head um, browsing on the leaves, and, of course, the dermal ridges running the length of the head, neck, and back of the animal. And needless to say, he didn't want to hang around because of the animal's reputation of capsizing canoes that get too close. But he got a very, very good observation of it for a couple of minutes, uh, before the animal became aware of his presence and decided to submerge under the water. And then uh, he paddled away back to his, uh, his village as fast as he could. But again, uh, very good sighting, uh, which, can, which does confirm to us at least the animals are still very active in that area. And um, hopefully we'll still be able to get one of those in film in the not-too-distant future. And in the meantime, uh, people can uh, get the book, Mokeli Mbembe, Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin. How's that book doing for you, Bill? Well, it's selling very modestly, um, but everyone who's read it uh, writes to me, emails me, telephones me, and tells me uh, just how much they enjoyed it. And, and the information in the last five chapters on the mystery animals really did open... Uh, or increased and gave them a tremendous insight into uh, the sort of um, mystery mystery of Africa and the wildlife that the animals have yet to be verified. Uh, Book sales all over the world are down anyway, but I'm very pleased the book is out. And at long last, yours, by the way, is on the way, so maybe you can do a review for me on YouTube sometime. Would love to do that. I will do that. (laughs) I promise. Mokeli Mbembe, Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin. Bill, always a pleasure. Let's uh, not leave it uh, so long next time. Indeed, Richard. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right. A quick timeout. We'll come back and uh, a few thoughts before we dim the lights here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. I have to tell you, it's a little disconcerting. Not dis- it's, it's actually kind of endearing, but uh, uh, when we're hearing these liners coming out of the, uh, the break, and Vanessa is mouthing them, she knows every one of them word for word, and Megan too, uh, and so they're actually doing the lip sync version here, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, their dedication <laughs> to the program, which I appreciate. Vanessa just turned 16, and she's here as part of her birthday present, courtesy of uh, um, her parents. And uh, the whole family practically is here. And Megan, a good friend uh, from uh, from high school, they listen to the show uh, faithfully on on podcasts and so forth. Let me ask you this as, as we uh, we get ready to say goodnight. Uh, sometimes, you know, watching how a television program is made or watching how a radio program is is made is like, you know, sausage. You don't sometimes you don't want to see it being made. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> sometimes it lessens the enjoyment of the sausage once you see how it's made. So. After you've you've been here, sort of behind the scenes on the uh, the radio program, is that going to uh, f- affect how you you uh, perceive the show when you're listening uh, at home? That's certainly not the case. It's not a sausage case. It's definitely increased it to know what's going on behind the veil has been lifted. Ah, there are faces <laughs> to the buttons that I know are being pressed. Yeah, it's really cool, especially with. Uh, radio even more than TV because when you're listening to the radio you can't really see anything so it's really cool to come here and see how everything's done. Well you know I I say this in in all seriousness AM radio uh, is really one of the last vestiges of of creativity on the airwaves because you know God bless uh, you know the music stations they and this is a music station too but you know they play music but we don't get to do storytelling anymore the way we do on, on, on talk radio. So, you know, spread the word, and I'm so delighted that you're listening to, uh, t- to the radio. Uh, it's, 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 a good, it's a good sign, you know, for us in the industry that there's somebody out there of your, of your uh, intellect and uh, enthusiasm and particularly your age group. Uh, wait till I tell the people in marketing you know, that we have <laughs> 16-year-old fans listening to the show. They'll be, they'll be thrilled. So... Spread the word is all I can say, and uh, I would really encourage you if you have an inkling uh, in terms of your career uh, to pursue uh, to pursue broadcasting and and uh, get into the storytelling business. It's a wonderful business. It's very gratifying. So again, happy birthday, Vanessa! Thank, Thank you, you for being here. Uh, I think I have time for one quick call. Greg is in Alliston. Greg, did you want to? Uh, uh, hi. hi there. Um, I might nature science teachings tell me that if there's an animal like that in the lake Ogopogo, that there has to be more than one. Yes, there would have to be more than one. You'd have to have a viable breeding population. That's true. So for, why wouldn't anyone be able to pick one up on a sonar fish find, like a smaller one? I can understand a big one would look like a submarine, but I mean, uh, a smaller one or, or caught one or um, even what we use here is a shock boat that they use in Ontario. They shock an area and float the fish up. And then that's how they test the water and test the chemicals in the water. Yeah, you could do that. They come back alive and they swim away, you know? Right. But turtles and everything come up, not just fish. Right. Uh, I I know. If if that animal's been spotted that many times, or this one in Africa, I'm just saying, uh, 
uh, I haven't heard anyone talk about the smaller ones, and I wanted to get your guest's last take on it and your take on, on that view, you, there, as that there must be, must be more than one. Well, I don't know about Ogopogo. I know that there have been some uh, in, in, um, in Loch Ness, there have been some, some uh, images. Right, and that's very old, so it's probably breeding. This one and, and the other lake, how long has it been around for in B.C.? Is maybe 100 years? Like how uh, I couldn't tell you offhand how far back the sightings go, but I would I would say, Greg, yes, it's probably at least a hundred years. So you're right. I mean, regardless, uh, uh, if it's a thousand years, if it's ten years ago, there has to be a breeding years, population. Right? Now I don't I can't even tell you how deep Ogopogo or Okanag, the Oak Lake Okanagan is. Over hundred feet, he said, and that's that's deep enough. Would would uh, would you be able to if you used one of these shock uh, wave type things? Uh, would that penetrate to a hundred feet to that depth? Uh, if you just use more power, I'm sure it would. Mm. You need a bigger boat. Right. Well, and yeah, but uh, I mean, even down at that depth, if in a bigger boat, you'd use sonar and cameras uh, before you'd probably do that to look for a bigger animal. I think. Um, Greg, I'm nominating you, you expedition. Richard Branson as a small sub. I think <laughs> I'm nominating you expedition leader. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you should get out to Lake Okanagan and and um, maybe because that's under 100 feet. It's warm water, right? Down there, below mm-hmm. 100 feet. Right. So a reptilian type animal could live. Sure. Sure. You know, well, cold, we think it's cold water, but below 100 feet, it's actually warm. Whatever it is, I don't think yeah. it's a sturgeon. I don't think it's an eel. It could just be something that we haven't... Um, oh, no, if there's fish bubbling up, it's a monster. It's big. Like, if a small fire coming up, that's yep. a definite sign there's a predator in the area. That's a big uh, behemoth, yeah, to be sure. Giveaway. Hey, Greg, thanks okay, for checking yeah. in from Allison. Great show. All right, thank Keep you. And, and, and educate those young people. That's what we need more of. All right. That's the smartest move yet. Okay, Have bye. a good one. Bye-bye. All right, back next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. As I said, I'm late. I'm late. In the meantime, I'm just going to cut to the quick. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.